Hello and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. Today we have a special episode featuring two tales from Malifaux in one. In the second half, we have a delicious and terrifying assortment of never-born vignettes. But first, we have the conclusion of the tale we began in our last episode. The story so far. A certain Dr. Mitchell has been taken hostage by a band of outlaws known as the Barrows Gang and brought to their hideout, an old ghost town in the Badlands. As we pick up the tale, the gang has decided to ride to the town of Ridley to exact a little vengeance. I hope you enjoy the conclusion of Paid in Full. After a few days, the Barrows gang set out for Ridley. Parker said he knew a fence there that would be interested in purchasing a few of the stolen soul stones. When Mitchell asked, Amelia explained that unloading the entire hall at once would draw too much attention, so most of the soul stones had been tucked away carefully in a hidden corner of the hideout. The days spent riding were long and monotonous. The unchanging terrain still bothered Mitchell, and he couldn't understand how Parker and his gang were able to find their way in it. He asked Amelia about it once, and she simply shrugged. You get used to it, she said, as if that explained everything. He hadn't pressed her for more. He was feeling less talkative the longer he rode. Maybe this was why Mad Dog didn't seem to speak very much. Maybe the dry, uncaring land in which he lived had simply drained him of any desire to do so. The whole way, Mitchell kept seeing the damned black jackal. He saw it before they bedded down at night, and again when he awoke in the morning. He glimpsed it out of the corner of his eye as they rode through the red, dusty haze. He even thought he saw it smiling once, but that was surely just his imagination. Every time he glimpsed it, he thought about the gun at the bottom of his bag. He could use it on the jackal. Or he could make his escape in the night and use it on one of the bandits if they caught him. They were ruthless killers. They knew the life they had chosen might end that way. They deserved it. But he just couldn't do it. He couldn't find his own way back to civilization in any case. Maybe later, when he didn't need them. When he worked up the courage. When he had a few drinks in him and didn't feel so scared about all the things that could go wrong. They made it to Ridley after what seemed like an eternity. Even though Mitchell knew it had only been a few days. He was glad to be in the familiar city after the great dead nothing of the northern hills. He felt at home among the streets, and the people there, even though he winced as they passed the boarded-up shop that had once been his practice. Mitchell spoke up as they paused to let a carriage pass them in the street. "'Well, Mr. Barrows, I must say it's been fun, but as it seems you no longer need me—' "'Not so fast, Doc,' Parker said, holding up a hand." We can't have you running off to the authorities while we're in town. We'll let you go when it's safe for us, and not a moment before then. 
The doctor slumped. Well, it was worth a try, he muttered. He figured he could make his break for it now, but there were too many people around, and he didn't think that Parker would think twice about shooting through a crowd of innocent people to kill him. Maybe later, if they had to get a room for the night. They met with Parker's fence in a small, poorly lit bar. The man wore spectacles high on his nose, and puffy white hair framed his face. His clothes looked too nice for the part of town they were in. Mr. Barrows, good afternoon, the man said as the bandit sat down at his table. I'm told you have something of interest for me. Parkin nodded. You were told correctly, Mr. Worthington. He passed a small sack across the table. Mr. Worthington peered into the sack briefly before closing it and glanced nervously about him. Then he slid a leather satchel across the table. The agreed-upon price. You'll find it, it's all there. That's not quite what I had in mind, Parker replied. There was a click as he cocked the pistol he'd drawn beneath the table. That was a mighty fine tip you gave me about the Guild Soulstone shipment. Even gave me the idea to use poisonous gas to knock them out, didn't you? Somehow, though, I can't help but feeling like they knew I was coming. Worthington tried to act offended. What? That's ridiculous. Don't waste my time, Parker sneered. We both know it was you. Now we're going to take a little walk back to your home and see if we can't find enough cash to properly honor the woman who died because of your lies. Do you know who I am? Worthington huffed. Do you know who I represent? You were useful to us for a time, but disrupting the guild only goes so far. You've become a liability, Parker. I don't give a damn who you are, Parker hissed. Then perhaps, Worthington replied, you should at least pay more attention to where you are. The bandits glanced around and noticed all eyes on them. The other patrons were drawing concealed weapons from beneath tables, and others had eyes or hands that were beginning to glow with the telltale signs of forbidden magic. Parker gritted his teeth and slowly holstered his weapon. Fine, he growled, motioning to the other bandits. Moving carefully, they backed out of the bar, their eyes scanning the occupants as they did. Mitchell could feel a tenseness to the air as if all it would take was a single word for all hell to break loose. Parker was the last to leave, and he stopped at the door. Worthington? The man regarded him with a scowl. Our business is done, Mr. Barrows. Parker whipped out one of his pistols in a blur of motion, and it thundered as Worthington's head snapped back, spraying fragments of skull behind him. Now it is, Parker hissed. A fireball chased Parker from the bar, where the other bandits were scrambling onto the horses Mad Dog had waiting for him. Mitchell was surprised to see the man. Somehow, Mad Dog, or Parker, he reflected, had known exactly how the meeting was going to go down. Together, the Barrows gang made a mad dash out of Ridley, kicking up clouds of dust and firing wildly over their shoulders at the angry arcanists who were pouring out of the bar behind them. Despite the frantic escape, Parker insisted they needed to get into position for their next job. Mitchell almost fancied he was starting to get used to the jury trudge through the barren north, but he would never get used to the damn black jackal that kept haunting him along the trail. Every time he saw it, he glanced down at his bag and thought about the pistol hidden there. They bedded down about a half mile from the train tracks. 
This section should be secluded enough, Parker said. To Mitchell, it all looked secluded. But the other members of the gang seemed to nod in approval, so he just got ready for another long, cold night outdoors. He awoke just before dawn. Parker was tapping him with his boot. You'll need to be ready to ride, he said. The train is due through here around dawn, and we'll need to move. Mad Dog is already setting the charges. Charges? The doctor blinked the sleep from his eyes. You're going to derail the whole train. What about boarding it first, like the last one? Parker shook his head. No time. Besides, with as many soul stones as we pulled out of the last one, and the people we robbed, the guild's going to be making a big show of packing the trains full of as many guardsmen as they can fit in there. Before long, they were all hidden behind a small hill, watching the train approach from atop their horses. Wait, Mitchell said, his brow creasing in thought. That train is heading towards Ridley from the city. It can't be carrying soul stones from the mines. Nope. Parker replied, even better. The express car is carrying this month's union payroll. We won't need to bother fencing any soul stones. We can just walk off with as much guild scrip as we can carry. Amelia leaned over in her saddle and held up her hand, mimicking a stage whisper. The union's lousy with arcanists, so hitting them in their wallets will really get a bee in their bonnet. The union is working with the arcanists? Mitchell's tone made it clear this was the first he'd heard of such a thing. Sure. Parker thought about it for a moment, then shrugged. Probably. When the train was almost on the charges, Mad Dog thrust downward on the plunger, sending a plume of dust up in front of the speeding locomotive. A shriek of wrenching metal split the air as the engineer applied the brakes as quickly as possible. But it was of no use. The train's momentum hurled it into the brake in the tracks, and the massive machine flipped onto its side, skidding along the ground and kicking up a horrendous cloud of red dust as the cars detached and ploughed into each other. The entire event took only a few seconds, but to Mitchell, it seemed like an eternity. Before the derailed cars had completely ground to a halt, the bandits were riding over the hill, giving wild yells and shooting randomly into the storm of dust and debris. The dock could hardly see a thing through the dust cloud, which was likely part of the plan. It would be impossible for any guards on the train to get a bead on the attacking bandits, assuming they could even collect themselves after the crash. Amelia held the tether of Mitchell's horse and kept him close at hand, ensuring he couldn't make his escape in the chaos. It didn't take them long to find the express car and blow the safe. The gang quickly set their minds to stuffing as much scrip as they could in their saddlebags, and Mitchell wasn't excluded from the frantic loot-gathering. As he shoved more scrip than he'd ever seen in his life into his bag, light glinted off metal and caught his eye. It was a torn bag of metal pins that had been polished to a shine. Etched onto the face of each pin was the phrase, Union and Proud. Mitchell wasn't sure why the bag was near the express car, but for all he knew, it had been thrown from one of the other cars in the crash. Looking around to make sure he wasn't spotted, he grabbed a handful of the pins and stuffed them into his coat pocket. All right, that's all we can carry, Parker shouted. Time to go. He fired one of his six-shooters into the air twice, signaling their retreat, and the bandits were galloping back toward their hideout before the dust from the wreck had started to fully settle. It was the same monotonous ride back to the hideout. The only break in the routine was when Mitchell would drop one of the shiny metal pins behind him when he was sure none of the other bandits were watching him. 
and every time he did so, he could swear he caught a glimpse of the black jackal in the corner of his eye. That night, they reveled in their victory again. The next day, Mitchell emerged slowly from sleep. Days of hard riding had left him rigid, and the dust in his lungs left him gasping for breath even now. When Amelia started shouting, he finally bounded down the stairs. He was the last of the gang to make it to the first floor. Everyone was already armed. What's going on? he asked, panting. Riders just came over the ridge, Amelia replied. They're already in the town, spread out. They probably have us surrounded. Who? Mitchell asked, his heart in his throat. Those Arcanist bastards, Parker scowled. Mitchell looked around frantically. He had hoped to be rescued by the Guild, not the Arcanists. So what do we do? They're in town, which means they have cover, Parker replied. They must be mounted, and they've probably got eyes on the horses, so escape is a bad idea. If I were them... I just set this building on fire and then pick us off as we ran out. That sounds bad for us, Mitchell replied. He winced as he began rethinking his decision to leave a trail back to the hideout. How would the Arcanists know that he wasn't one of the bandits? Well, I said that's what I would do. Fortunately, I'm in here and not out there. Parker jerked his thumb at the carefully counted script laid out on the bar. They probably want their script back and that tends to burn. They have to come in, which means that we need to be ready for them. I want three rifles on the upper levels. Everyone else down here. Stay away from the windows unless you're shooting. Mad Dog, cover the door. The big man with a shotgun nodded. Doc, Parker said, go hide somewhere. When everything is done, patch up anyone who survives. You're useless in a shootout, and I'm sure as hell not giving you a gun. Mitchell let out a huge sigh of relief through trembling lips. I'll be behind the bar. When the attack began, Parker stood up from behind his overturned table and fired one of his six-shooters out of the window. He just held down the trigger and played his hand across the hammer, emptying the entire chamber in a heartbeat. He didn't bother reloading the gun. He just dropped it and drew his second one, repeating the process. The revolver spitting out bullets at a pace that should have been reserved for a Gatling gun as far as Mitchell knew. Amelia was ducking low, reloading the pistols as Parker dropped them and then handing them back up. The glass of the saloon's window shattered to nothing, the wooden walls exploding around Parker as one of the unseen arcanists lobbed some sort of exploding rock at the building, sending sharpened splinters flying in every direction. Parker just grimaced and kept shooting, the barrels of his gun smoking as he sent volley after lethal volley out into the street. Amelia couldn't keep up with him, though, and eventually he crouched down again, muttering a curse as he slammed bullets into the chambers of his gun. Used to be you put six bullets in a man, that's the end of it. He shook his head. I really hate this damn place. A man burst through the door, raising hands that glowed with a pale blue light. He had been shot multiple times in the abdomen, and he let out a feral howl as he barged into the room. Mad Dog put him down with a blast from his shotgun, right in the head. Thanks. Parker called back to him. Mad Dog nodded and turned back to firing out of his window. Two men in long coats ran in next, their pistols firing blindly as they came around the corner. Amelia gunned one down, 
but she was hit in the shoulder by one of their shots, and she spun before hitting the floor. Parker put two bullets in each of their skulls. The entire time, the rifles from upstairs kept thundering. Suddenly, a storm of blue energy hit the wall of the saloon like a freight train. Wood ripped from the wall, furniture went flying, the bandits were blown to the ground, and when it was over, there was a massive hole in the side of the building. Part of the ceiling gave out, and two of the rifle-wielding bandits from the top floor plummeted to the ground. A hulking mage stepped through, energy rippling up and down his arms. He raised a hand and incinerated one of the fallen bandits, filling the room with a stink of roasting meat. Parker was the first to react, rolling out of the way of the second blast and grabbing his pistols. One of the bandits charged the mage, wielding his rifle like a club, and landed a solid blow to his throat. The mage barely flinched. He grabbed the bandit's wrists, and Mitchell could hear his flesh sizzle as a scream was ripped from his lungs. Parker aimed his pistols and let out another volley of fire, shooting through his fellow bandit and into the mage, ripping holes in both their bodies before the two collapsed in a tangled heap. Sorry, friend, Parker whispered. Silence fell on the saloon, and Mitchell peeked out from behind the bar. Amelia was bleeding and unconscious, and Mad Dog was on the floor gripping his stomach where one of the mage's blasts had seared his flesh. The only person still fully aware was Parker, bleeding and panting. Mitchell waited one minute, then two. Finally, when he was sure that the fighting was done, he crawled out from behind the bar, his medical bag clutched in trembling hands. Mad Dog was still breathing. Amelia was finally starting to groan and get up. Parker stared up at the dock, those cold blue eyes studying him as he pulled a cigarette out from a pocket and placed it between his lips. A bloody box of matches followed, and he fumbled weakly with them in an attempt to get one out. Mitchell could see that Parker was wounded. Blood was pouring down his shoulder, and it looked as if the adrenaline was starting to give way to pain and exhaustion. The doctor reached into his bag and gripped the flintlock at the bottom in a shaking hand. When we first met, Parker mused, his head leaning back against the upturned table behind him. I could tell you were looking for your place, trying to figure out what kind of person you were. He winced as he finally got a match free from the box and struck it, lighting it in a flare of flame. Right now you're probably wondering about me, wondering if I even have the strength to light this damn cigarette. Mitchell's palm was sweating as he clutched the hidden gun so tightly that his knuckles had surely turned white. Outside, he heard the mocking, laughing howl of a jackal. Parker stared at him with those cold blue eyes as he slowly, deliberately raised the match to his cigarette, turning the end of it into a glowing cherry. The doctor's shoulders slumped, and he drew his hand from the bag, revealing the steel tongs he used to remove bullets. Parker relaxed, his eyes closing as he took a long pull from his cigarette. Good choice, Doc. He exhaled a cloud of swirling, acrid smoke. Good choice. Mitchell never saw the jackal again. This time on the Breachside Broadcast, we have a repeat sponsor. 
Today's episode is brought to you once again by Vignettes. They're smaller and cuter than full-sized Vigs, but they pack just as much punch. Pick up a six-pack today. Neverborn Vignettes The return of the Autumn Queen cast the Neverborn into chaos. She was another wedge shoved between their already disparate ranks, dividing them when unity was needed the most. Or at least that was Lilith's opinion. From the moment she had laid eyes on Titania, she knew that the woman was a dire threat to their cause, and her conversation with the Queen had only solidified that belief in her mind. However, Lilith could not afford to move against her just yet. Zoraida had become indisposed in the wake of the governor's death, too caught up in her own visions and plots to be of any great use. Once, the two of them had considered using the governor-general to seal off the ether tear created by the fall of the Red Cage, as they had done with Dor so long ago. Looking back at how much power the man had managed to accumulate before his end, she wondered if they had made a mistake in discarding the idea so quickly. Shaking the thought from her head, she turned her attention back to the small frontier town. The terratots at her heels fidgeted in anticipation for the coming meal, and Lilith allowed herself a pang of regret. They were still too young to undergo the change, but she needed capable fighters, and she needed them now. With a gesture from her hand, heavy clouds rolled over the moon, plunging the frontier town into darkness. She glanced down at her children and nodded, sending them scurrying toward the nearest house with surprising speed. The screaming started a few minutes later, but rather than take joy in the slaughter of humans, it only saddened her. She was sacrificing the future of the young ones for the present, but what other choice did she have? Pandora stood in the court of the Autumn Queen feigning respect for Titania, while quietly prodding at Lilith's psyche, needling her toward rash behavior with subtle whispers of power lost and reminders of her sister's ambition. The box watched the queen, weighing its options as its puppet kept her distracted with insipid banter. That night, Pandora met with a handsome guild lawyer and convinced him to claw out his own throat. The box drank in the dying man's last moments, wallowing in his terror and confusion as the last of his life bled out on the cold cobblestones. The box strode confidently into the frontier town. Pandora clutched tightly in its... Pandora raised a hand to her forehead, pausing at the edge of the town as she tried to gather her thoughts. She reminded herself that she was not the box, and then wondered why she would ever have to do such a thing. Holding the box up in front of her, she frowned regarding it for what felt like the first time. Where had she even found it? She couldn't remember ever not having the box, and yet... The thought disappeared, plucked from her mind like a ripe fruit. She regarded the box in her hands for a moment, then looked around in confusion, trying to remember what she was doing. Faded wooden buildings, people looking at her strangely from behind windows. Pandora shrugged her shoulders, It must not have been too important, she thought, as she opened the box, 
releasing countless screaming, gibbering horrors out into the world and dooming the frontier town to madness. The box smiled with her mouth. Zoraida had planned to shield herself from the ramifications of the Governor-General's failed attempts at ascension. But rather than merely consume him, the ritual flooded his body with an unexpected surge of etherical energy, and when he was gone, that energy snapped outward like uncontrolled lightning. The effigies that Zoraida had created years earlier, tied as they were to the pattern of fate, served as grounding points for this energy. Harnessing and containing it, and in that moment, fate slipped from Zoraida's grasp. It took her weeks to find the frayed threads of fate and bring them back under her control. But by then the damage had been done. The governor had manifested on Earth as the Burning Man. The barrier between the two worlds had begun to collapse, and Nythera had opened, releasing an ancient threat back into the world. Unfortunately, there was just too much to be done and Zoraida could sense that her time was beginning to run short. She had to prioritize, and that meant leaving Titania to Lilith and the Burning Man to the people of Earth, where her ability to influence anything was much reduced. The barrier between the worlds, however, that was something she had some control over. She had once before used Jack Dor as a mystical wedge to seal away the ether, and now it was time for a similar ritual. That would require her to find the right person and trick them into accepting the bargain. But Zoraida had plenty of tools at her disposal, so there was little doubt that she would find another suitable wedge. The only question was whether she would find one in time. The dreamer, awake and terrified, hid in his closet as London burned around him. The streets had flooded days ago, trapping his family in their mansion. His father waited outside with a fire poker to search for a member of the police or military, anyone who could help them, and never came back. His mother attempted to comfort him when they heard the voices outside, claiming that everything was all right, but the dreamer knew better. It wasn't the first time he'd heard someone being eaten by a monster. A patrol of English policemen eventually came to their house in a motorboat, rescuing the dreamer and his mother, and evacuating them from the doomed city. As the dreamer looked back on the flooded, flaming ruins of his home, and the man-shaped star that burned overhead like a midnight sun, he realized that he had been squandering his power. All the games he played with Lord Chompybits, all the inconsequential races and games of tag, he had been living in the past, trying to hold onto a childhood that seemed more and more distant with each passing year, when he should have been thinking bigger. When the dreamer fell asleep in the refugee camp that night, the version of him that appeared in Malifaux was older, appearing more like his twelve-year-old waking self than the younger form he'd clung to for so many years. Neither was he dressed in his sleeping gown. Instead, he looked the part of a mischievous street scamp with a cricket bat cocked over one shoulder. When Lord Chompybits questioned his new appearance, the dreamer informed the tyrant that they were done playing kid games. Now they were going to have some real fun. Kalodi put the final touches on his latest creation, 
and carefully placed it on the shelf inside its wagon, next to its other creations. The puppet carefully smoothed out its stitched costume as it stirred to life. After a moment, it slowly raised its tiny wooden hands up to its painted face, as if seeing them for the first time. Once, long ago, Kalotti had rejoiced in each new puppet it added to its collection, hoping that a warm welcome might make the puppets feel appreciated in the way that Kalotti had not been. But years of travel and conflict had worn down the puppet master's spirit. As it watched the new puppet pantomime weeping into its hands, Kalotti realized that it simply didn't care whether or not the new puppet felt comfortable in its collection. In fact, Kalotti didn't feel anything. It just felt lonely. Lonely and empty. It thought back to its own creation, a hundred years prior, and wondered whether its own creator had felt the same. As Kalotti considered this, it realized that it knew very little about its creation. It had been created to entertain children, yes. But why? Kalotti was a sophisticated construct, far more advanced than the countless animated dolls and marionettes that it had created over the course of the past decade. But why? Why create an advanced construct such as Kalotti, only to give it the enjoyable but ultimately trivial task of entertaining children? The questions refused to leave Kalotti's mind, and soon they were all it could think about. Its creator was surely dead. But there had to be a workshop or a journal somewhere that could shed some light on these questions. At the very least, Kalotti might be able to find some of its creator's notes, which would help it with its own craftsmanship. It was a distant hope, but for Kalotti, who had gone on for so long without any hope at all, it was still enough to bring a long, absent smile to its wooden face. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.